Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Lisa Crispin. Based in Vermont, Lisa has worked in software testing for two decades, working on projects for companies from startups to big established organizations, and she's currently working in the role of senior software engineer and test at Oploans. Along with her colleague, Janet Gregory, Lisa is also co-founder of Agile Testing Fellowship, and you can check out their Donkeys and Dragons podcast on YouTube. You can follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Crispin, check out her website at lisacrispin.com, and read her blog at agiletester.ca slash blog. Also, along with her colleague, Janet, Lisa is co-author of the LeanPub book, Agile Testing Condensed. In the book, Lisa and Janet provide an overview of how to build a quality Agile software testing culture, including how to fit testing activities into the cycle of Agile software development and how to get everyone on the team engaged and much more. In this interview, we're going to talk about Lisa's background and career, professional interests, her book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience, both in traditional and in self-publishing. So thank you very much, Lisa, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's quite an honor to be on it. And uh, you've covered such a wide range of topics already in your podcast. I can't wait to go listen to them all. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an honor to, it's an honor to have you here. Um, I, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into a career in software development and testing. Well, I am uh, originally from Texas, grew up in Houston, and uh, I I majored in animal science with a focus in beef cattle production in college. Uh, and this was back before anybody was gonna hire women to run ranches or beef cattle facilities. So then I got an MBA in organization development and I worked in research for a couple of years for the engineering extension service. And then I got laid off and it's like, well, dang, I need to be employed and I'd like to move to Austin. And I wandered around Austin job hunting and wandered into the, the University of Texas employment office and saw a big sign that said, programmer trainees wanted, no experience necessary. I said, that's me. Because <laughs> I think I had one computer course in college. This was really a long time ago. So uh, anyway, so I learned I, they had a great training program and that's where I got into programming and fast forward mm, more than 10 years, a little more than 10 years probably. Um, I got into testing because I was working for a software company and um, our customers were getting really annoyed. And this is when people called you directly on the phone. <laughs> like, how could you not have known that this release had this terrible bug in it? It was really embarrassing. So we asked the developers, like, could you give, could you give it to us a little before you give it to the customers? We were in customer, we were in tech support. Like, we'd like to try it out ourselves and see if we find any bugs. And so we started doing that. And then we could at least be working on a patch by the time the first angry customer called. And our managers sort of were like, huh, testing. That's an interesting idea. So we started the uh, a release and testing department and I put my hand up and joined. So never looked back. I, I, I enjoyed being a programmer, but I don't know, for some reason I enjoy the testing side of things more. And uh, those, that would have probably been the days when you, when you first started in testing, when typically people did waterfall rather than agile uh, development. Is that correct? Well, you know, the place I was working, I don't know what you could call it, just mostly chaos. <laughs> 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 but I did do it in Waterfall. I, and actually, Waterfall gets a bad name, but I had a testing job in the early 90s um, with a database company. And um, we did a great job of Waterfall. Uh, we, our quality was very high because guess what? We had like 90 something percent unit test coverage. And we had automation test coverage at the UI level as well. And testers 
and developers were involved in each project from the beginning, from the beginning phase of analysis and requirements. There wasn't a handoff mentality. Everybody still worked together. And we had continuous integration. We had automated deployments. Uh, these things are not new. <laughs> There just weren't very many people doing them back in the 90s. So when people say waterfall and they, they mean chaos, it's that's not true. It's not, there's nothing inherently wrong with the waterfall pro process. It's just that you cannot compete in today's world, moving that slowly. We were, we were, we were releasing every six months to one year. Uh, for, for any, we, that we, doesn't we, happen anymore. <laughs> we, went, we went ahead and introduced uh, technical terms without really setting the stage. So just for anyone listening, we will explain what, what these things mean um, uh, as, as we go on in the interview. But um, yeah, so I mean, in, in the sort of software development world, there's this sort of generally understood contrast between waterfall, which is basically you can think of it as like, there's somebody who sets out every step of a software development process, um, which sounds like a good idea until you kind of realize that often that makes it difficult to adapt to changes when there's a problem with mm -hmm. the plan. Uh, the person who's making the plan might not be the person who's had experience recently with actually doing software development, so they might not know. But and the, the part of it that fascinates me the most, and I don't come from a programming background myself, but I've had some experience with, you know, clients and things like that, is uh, once you've got an instruction manual like that for what to do, it actually it means you're going to have a command and control mm -hmm. uh, management structure, right? So there's gonna be someone who commissions someone to make this plan. There's gonna be someone who makes the plan. They're gonna hand it off to people who are then responsible for making sure parts of the plan are delivered. And then they're gonna issue like more and more finely detailed commands to the people beneath them. Um, and this is a, a very unwieldy and often very unpleasant structure to work in. Um, and one of the reasons I just wanted to go into detail explaining it that way is because I think a lot of people, both their first experience with software testing, if they've ever done it, but their, mm -hmm. their understanding of what it might be would be something like this. You're even further down the ladder, <laughs> right? When in, in that kind of thing. And, um, and what happens is actually, I think, I forget who it was. It might've been David Greenlees, who I interviewed years ago for the podcast, but their first job was like, just this terrible experience as a tester, a terrible experience of like, you're in a cubicle, you're at the bottom of the ladder and you get literally a checkbox list of like, go through this set of actions and mm -hmm. report the result and go through this set of actions and report the result. And you're basically like a thing, you know, carrying out discrete set of tasks that they haven't been able to automate yet, you know? And um, so, but, but testing doesn't have to be that way. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into that. Well, the other bit. side to that too is not only were you given all these instructions, but you were at the very end. And so there was always a hard deadline. And so instead of you thought you were going to have a three-week testing phase, and instead it's like, no, we're going to release tomorrow. And can you just do this test today? <laughs> yeah, I know. And, and I think it's really important to, to say like the pressure after all that work has been done and all that money and time has been invested, it's really difficult to be the person to go actually like you said you know how can how can you release this with a bug right which is a common sort of ordinary everyday mm -hmm. person's experience with any software that's broken or doesn't work like how could you possibly mm -hmm. do it and it's like well there was this huge tsunami of pressure behind the person who found the bug who just maybe went i i don't want to because one of the things that will happen too and i don't I'm, I'm talking way too much but you know i once had the experience of like being someone who was using software to do my job, but it was the software mm -hmm. was still in a work in progress. And mm -hmm. I clicked a button 
and shut down the whole operation <laughs> by virtue oh, of having clicked a button in a UI, doing what I was supposed to do, right? And I remember, I still remember there was like commotion, right? Everybody, the whole office was shut down. Nobody could work anymore. And I remember this, these two guys who I kind of knew came up to me and they were like, you know, the boss, Mike, is, is in the office shouting and angry at, at what happened here. And the person he's mad at is you <laughs> because you broke the system. Uh... And I, I was, it was my first real job. I was like, you know, 24 years old. And I just turned around and said, gave a profanity ridden rant that said, like, I know what's happening here. Like, there's no way that someone clicking a button should have been able to break it. It's your effing fault. Mm -hmm. And you can go fuck yourselves. <laughs> and off they went. Uh, and I kept my job and no one was ever blamed for that again. But in any case, just setting all the sort of the colorful stories there. This is one of the things I wanted to ask you about. So if I'm sure you probably get asked when people find out what you do all the time, how is it that in today's day and age, there can be things like the Boeing problem, mm. you know, which I talked about in a previous interview with Lena Viber, um, you know, that she talks about in her talks. When you're sitting around the dinner table and someone asks you that, what's, what's your answer for how these huge projects can go so terribly awry? There are so many ways that they can go wrong. Um, and I really think in the case of things like Boeing and NASA, a lot of times it boils down to psychological, psychological safety. People didn't feel safe to bring up the problem and it just got covered up. And, you know, in the modern agile that Joshua Karievsky uh, has, has um, promoted or educated people about, one of the prerequisites is psychological safety. People have to feel safe to, to point out the problem and ask the questions. Uh, and I think, it, it, I mean, that's one of the most important things is uh, you can't feel like you're going to get in trouble if you quote unquote break something. Uh, or you found something that's broken. So, um, but a lot of it is, you know, it, it usually boils down to culture and communication. Most software bugs are communication problems. And it's about not having that shared understanding up front of here's what we, here's what we need to build. Here's, here's how we're gonna solve a customer problem. Here's the software that we need to deliver in order to do that. And it, it, it while agile development is all about, oh, we don't want to do big upfront design, we don't want to have these big analysis phases at the front, still, we have got to have that shared understanding that we're all seeing the same vision of what we're going to create and paring that down to the absolute minimum to start with so that we can get something out and start getting feedback on it. But that takes a lot of discipline and it takes a lot of understanding of why it matters to invest in quality everybody wants quality but they don't want to necessarily make the big investment in it and that's those are usually cultural problems and leadership problems and speaking of culture so we introduced um uh you know the idea of waterfall and explained it a little a little bit um uh, but the other term that came up was agile of course mm -hmm. um and i was wondering if you could uh you could maybe for you know people who might not have heard about it what's and, and contrasting it with my kind of cartoonish explanation of waterfall what's, yeah. what's agile agile is is boils down to uh we're we're making we're delivering value to customers frequently and i think elizabeth henderson i'm kind of paraphrasing her and without uh accumulating technical debt and, and without making a big mess as we go that we have to go clean up later or that will drag us down so we're using the good, to do that, we have to use the good technical practices like the, the, 
one of the early flavors of agile development was extreme programming, poorly named. But there were a lot of practices that went with it. And again, like I say, these weren't new practices. We were doing them in the early 90s. But uh, test-driven development. So we use our tests at the unit level to guide our development. So we write a little tiny test for a little piece of code. And then, and then we write the code to make that test pass. And we build on it. And also guiding tests with guiding development with business-facing tests. So that gets into more of a, a tester job. The TDD is more of the the coder's job. Now we're getting more of the tester's job to get people together. Let's get a product person. Let's get some developers. Let's get designers, uh, whoever we need together and talk about this feature we want to deliver. And how will we know when, we, when we're finished? So let's write some acceptance tests um, to guide us so that we know when, when we have written enough code to deliver that value to the customer and try to break that into the smallest increments that we can to, to lower the risk. If we make a small change and something happens in production, we know exactly what we did to cause that problem. So if we don't waste time trying to analyze what happens. So that, that moves into continuous delivery. That's, that's part of agile development of every time we make a change, a small change, we, we're, we test it, we're happy with it. it. We think it solves a customer problem. Let's get it, let's get it out in production and let's get the feedback from the customers using it. If they don't, if it doesn't work for them, we turn it off. <laughs> so um, yeah, I guess that's kind of it in a nutshell, the, the small incremental iterative delivery of value. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. I mean, the changes in the industry over time, right? You know, at, at the beginning of software, basically, you know, I mean, we were thinking about like personal use of software, right? Um, uh, you, you, went and, you went to the store and you bought something and like a disc and you put it mm -hmm. into your computer. And so um, releases happened rarely um, mm -hmm. uh, because you have to print or create, like if it's a disc, a, a, a you know, CD or whatever, but you have to basically create this product. You have to ship it out. Stores have to put it on the shelves. You're paying for where to put it on the shelf. You've mm -hmm. paid to put your logo on the box and, and what have you. Uh, and if something's broken, it's terrible. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, with, with continuous development, and this you know, started happening years ago, but, you know, and a lot of people, of course, would take it for granted now, but, you know, you can just sort of make a change put it into production, as they say, and make it live for everybody all around the world using it, whether it's mm -hmm. an it's an update, you know, update me now, or it's actually updates just happening in the background. And that means that in order, but in order to operate that way, you can't be having to like go through a really big structured, heavy kind of process in order to, right. to adapt. And that's where the metaphor exactly. of agility partly comes exactly. in. Exactly. Yeah. It's keeping everything very lightweight. And a lot of it is about transparency and visibility. Anybody in the business can understand at a glance what's going on, what are the development teams working on, um, what's the status, and uh, just that visibility is really important too. So that you know, unlike the battle days where we've been working on something for six months and then we're supposed to release tomorrow, but now we have to go and tell the CEO, "Oops, sorry, <laughs> we're not ready." <laughs> if we can tell them, yeah, we hope to release it next week, and but. Tomorrow, I discover, oh, we've got a problem that's going to take us a little more time. Nah, they've got more time to deal with that. There are no unpleasant surprises at the very end. Actually, this this reminds me of it's, it's sort of it's sort of a bit of a sideways move in the discussion. But um, we're talking about doing something, you know, dedicating a lot of effort to something for a long period of time and then going out into the world and realizing, uh oh, maybe it doesn't quite match what I expected it mm -hmm. to be or the world's changed since then. Um, mm -hmm. One of the one of the questions that often comes up in various formulations on this podcast is, um, 
depending on a person's background and the way it'll go for you is, um, so you you didn't do a four-year computer science degree, but you ended up in a career, you know, in 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 you know software development mm -hmm. and engineering. Um, if you were starting out now, with the intention of having a career like the one you've you've had, would you want to do a four-year computer science degree? I personally would not. I don't enjoy coding that much. I don't really want to know, you know, I can drive a car without knowing how the engine works. I don't really want to know how the engine works. It's kind of interesting, but um, I, I, an, a big component of any successful business, and this has been proven with data, is diversity. So when we have a diverse group with lots of perspectives, we have a better chance of solving our customer problems. And, um, you know, I, I, Lots of people can be good at testing, but I feel like as testers, we usually have a fairly unique viewpoint. Some things we bring to the party that not everybody brings through. Asking, asking those what if questions that other people didn't think to ask. Um, thinking of those nightmare headlines and things like that. What don't we want to have? What don't we want to see on Twitter right after we release this to production? Um, you know, and I mean, it's, I personally, you know, if, if I were assembling a team, you know, I'd want some liberal arts graduates. I would want some music graduates. I, in fact, when I started out as a, a programmer at University of Texas at Austin Data Processing Division, I think four of the people of, of a, the team of about 30 people were PhDs in music. Uh, it was really interesting. Or people who major in languages and stuff. There's just something about the pathways in their brain that are a little different than the rest of us. And, and we need all those perspectives and we need people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds and educational backgrounds and socioeconomic, whatever it is, the more diversity you have, the better. Yeah, I, I, I could not agree with you more. Um, my background is in English literature and I, there ended, you up, go. I ended up in investment banking right after that. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, and there were, well, there were lots of people on my team who um, were, you know, their background was in chemistry or, or like, mm -hmm. you know, kind of mm -hmm. like bridge and tunnel engineering or, um, mm -hmm. or uh, you know, mathematics or, or anything like that. And the, uh, the idea that, I mean, you know, I don't want to go down this path, but, you know, basically the idea conflating education with job training mm -hmm. is a huge mistake. They're not mm -hmm. the same thing. And someone who's worked hard, I mean, whether it's in a formal institution to get a degree or not, someone who's worked really hard to understand something complex has a lot of skills and abilities that are going to apply to a wide range of, of areas. And it is one of the reasons I would say that diversity is actually so, so important, right? Because mm -hmm. if, if everyone's been, everyone in your team has been funneled through a very specific kind of grinder, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you just really aren't going to have the broad range of, of, of insight and experience and knowledge that you need to tackle broad problems. Um, yeah, it's really important to not get into that group think mentality. You know, if you have a really homogenous team, you, you just start being blind to certain things. We all have cognitive biases. Uh, that's a big problem. And my hope is that we all have different ones. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't find any science to see that that's true, but, but because diversity is proven to be helpful companies with diversity make more money, et cetera. Uh, I think that it must be true that when we're all together working, um, you know, you're able to see something I'm not able to see. And then that when, when I when you point that out, then I'm able to see something you weren't able to see. And so 
I think it's really important. And, and again, going back to communication, and like I said, like I say, a lot of most software bug, bugs are miscommunication in some way. We didn't get the right requirements, or we didn't even really understand what the customer wanted because we didn't really ask the questions the right way. And so that's why liberal arts degrees are so important. People who are good at writing, people who are good at speaking, people who are good at listening. We need all those skills. They're really important. And you know, companies send their programmers to training and all these coding things, but who sends them to training and communication? I don't know, not very many. Yeah, it's, it's uh, yeah, I could talk about this forever. I mean, it's one, one thing that's really interesting from our everyday language is the metaphor of like reading a room, for example, or reading mm -hmm. a situation. And it's like, actually like, thinking hard about reading and what it is makes a huge difference to your assessment of any particular situation and what to do next right mm -hmm. um and actually there's something very specific that you talk about in the book uh you and jenna about um having a shared definition of valuable definition of done mm -hmm. um uh, which we'll get to talking about in a little bit but that that idea of actually explicitly defining terms right the thing you learn to do at the beginning of any debate you know <laughs> debate club or whatever but like mm -hmm. it's this just crucially important step for mm -hmm. any kind of group activity that in ordinary everyday interactions we actually just just pass it over as though it can't really be that important to like get our terms right and it's or you're being pedantic or something like that and it's like no nothing nothing could be more important for the long-term health and success of any project than actually getting your terms defined um uh, but before we actually go on to, to the next part of the interview and talk about the book I wanted to ask you about something uh, specific, which is uh, I mentioned that your um, your and Janet's podcast is called Donkeys and Dragons, uh, <laughs> and the reason there's donkeys in there is that you uh, you have some donkeys yourself. Yes, yes, we do. We 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 have a little thirty one acre farm here in Vermont, and we we actually own three donkeys, two miniature donkeys and a standard size donkey. But we also have a a permanent guest miniature donkey who lives with us. So four donkeys frolicking around the field and um, and our donkeys all they all do work they pull you know we drive them in carts wagons they they haul brush do work around the farm skid logs they love to work so uh, i've learned a lot about agility from them because donkeys completely work off trust i, I grew up riding horses i had horses all my life uh, and when with the first donkey i tried to train uh the techniques I used with horses were not working. And I finally met a, a somebody who had decades of experience training donkeys. And he's like, the first thing you have to know is that the donkey thinks you have to love him more than anything else. And I'm like, that sounds weird coming from this cowboy who's you know, a horse trainer, but it's really true. They, if they trust you, they will do absolutely anything for you. And if they don't, that's why they get the reputation for being stubborn. You can bully them, you can bribe them. If they think that what you want them to do is not in their best interest, they will not do it. And how do you and establish trust with a donkey? Very carefully. <laughs> um, you know, they start out with trust, but if somebody's abused them or whatever, they, they lose trust. Um, but I mean, part of it is, you know, part of it is through their stomach, feeding them, <laughs> spending time with them showing them that you're going to keep them safe if they're scared of anything get them away from the thing they're scared of or get that thing away from them and uh and and over time they do learn to trust you and then it's really important to keep the trust like when i drive my donkeys i need to make sure that their harness and collar are fitting correctly if it rubs a sore then they're gonna say hmm that didn't feel good and i don't know if i want to work with you anymore 
So I have to be really careful what I do because it's really hard to build it back up if you break it. And I'm sorry for the very specific question, but I, I love animals myself and I don't okay. have much experience with donkeys, but do they get along with other animals too, like dogs oh, and yeah. cats and stuff like that? Okay. They do, they do. And I mean, they, they love, you know, my donkeys have lived with goats and llamas and, you know, horses, of course. Uh, and I mean, I've seen birds stand around on their backs. <laughs> Uh, I, I've known I've known cats that got on donkeys' backs, and my donkeys do love dogs. But one of my donkeys is very playful, and so he'll he'll like chase a dog or a cat. He's only trying to play. They don't necessarily know that, and something bad could happen. It could end in here. So so we keep the dogs and cats away. <laughs> and and of course, big dogs or coyotes are predators. Are they don't. That, that's not a good thing. And that's why I have a standard sized donkey because the little ones can't defend themselves. So she keeps all the coyotes away, the big one. Uh, my next question before we go on to uh, talk about your books and is um, uh, one thing I started doing uh, much longer ago than I wish it were is introducing a little section where we ask people about their experience of the, of the pandemic. Um, okay. Um, uh, so we've got a little archive of people's experience from different industries and professions and levels of career and all around the world. Mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody was on the last flight out of London to Poland when they were allowed to go if they weren't a citizen kind of thing. And people who've had COVID, you know, oh, people, wow. who, people who thought they did. Um, and so, but, but I mean, some people live, live uh, in amongst other people. I remember interviewing someone from London who was like, I can't get to Hyde Park without going down these narrow streets. Um, wow. And uh, being concerned about that. But yes, you, you live on this beautiful farm. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your experience has been like. I feel extremely lucky to have been in Vermont <laughs> during the pandemic for lots of reasons. We are in a rural location. It's pretty easy to self-isolate. Uh, but, you know, Vermont is very, you know, we have, I think, 635,000 people in the whole state. Um, so, the, so that helps. But what also helps is it's just a culture of people are generally very nice and, and willing to follow rules that, the, that our lawmakers set out or that businesses establish. They don't come in here without a face mask. Okay, we're just people who get along. <laughs> so there were not the issues of people saying, I'm not gonna wear a mask, I'm not gonna get vaccinated. We were the first state to get the 80% vaccination rate. Um, so yeah, I think that's just, well, I think a lot of you know a lot of hippies and draft dodgers moved here in the sixties and seventies and <laughs> just changed the culture. And also, we're surrounded by farms, and all these farms are organic, sustainable agriculture, humane treatment of animals. We didn't have to get, go to the grocery store to get food. We could get all the food we need and, and still do from the farms around us. And um, it was interesting how they all. You know, it used to be you'd go to the farm and just talk to the farmer, or you'd go to their farm shop, which is on the honor system. You know, you, you took what you wanted and, and left the money, or they had your credit card on file. Well, with the pandemic rules, they had to get a little more sophisticated. And it was shocking how quickly, you know, they got Squarespace or whatever, made a website so you could order ahead and they could have it all ready for you. Uh, and they pulled together the farms that were bigger and more established with their farm stores to help the, the other farmers who didn't have that and then they put all that stuff on their website and you could come and buy it and it's really it really changed how they're able to sell I think it was actually really good for the small farmers here so um, yeah I mean it's been we've been very lucky and 
and also with the donkeys, uh, it was a, a social opportunity because people would want, I'd like to come walk your donkeys with you because we take them for walks. And so friends would come over, we're all wearing a mask, we can stay socially distant and walk four donkeys down the road and talk as we walk and have a good time. And so it was just a nice outlet for people. Thanks very much for sharing that. You reminded me of um, a friend of mine in, in Montreal told me that they heard that there were farmers in the surrounding area, I think, who were actually like, renting out time with their cows. Oh, so you could drive out and, and <laughs> hang out with the cow for like 50 bucks. You can hang out with a cow for an hour. <laughs> I mean, that is really nice, especially when people are lonely and maybe haven't seen their family for such a long time. Being able to go, just get out of your house, go somewhere safe because it's outside mm -hmm. and then just interact with a with a friendly animal i love um, that wonderful thing um and actually just just on that uh, specifically though i imagine you know you've, you've you were probably already working remotely in in all your positions oh yeah then. yeah oh yeah for work wise i was i was already working remotely you know when we moved to vermont it was with the idea of you know we're going to live in this rural location where it's easy to have the donkeys because commuting to a metropolitan area and affording acreage to have donkeys on was not compatible. Um, and so I was already working remotely, but it did open up a lot more job opportunities for me because now, you know, the company I'm working for now, they didn't have remote people before. So it definitely opened up a lot more opportunities. And you know, especially in the places where like maybe you're the only remote person or there are a couple of remote people, that's very difficult to deal with because it takes the people in the office a lot of discipline to remember <laughs> to include you and have a Zoom call. Um, and then you have all these audiovisual uh, problems. So we're in a conference room and they've got their camera and microphone on, but I can't hear them or they can't hear me. That's a nightmare when everybody's on Zoom, playing field is level. And where I worked, but places I've worked before already had got to realizing if we had a, if everybody wasn't co-located, it was better just to have everybody get on Zoom and level the playing field. But now lots and lots of companies have discovered that. So, um, so lots of silver linings to the pandemic, plus being able to go to all these meetups that were now online and listen to talks and lots of people did webinars. And so I got to learn a lot as well. Yeah, one of the one of the many fascinating things to see over the last, you know, I mean, you know, 18 months or whatever it is now is, has been, um, as you say, you know, like so many people in so many different industries and walks of life innovating and, and mm -hmm. adapting, even in very conservative industries like law or medicine or mm -hmm. so I actually interviewed a lean pub author a while ago who works for a, an American defense related company and she said that uh yeah like it's getting easier to try and say we might want to have remote workers rather than everybody have to be you know coming to the building every day mm -hmm. and that way actually like the opportunities are it's not just it's not as it were just for the people getting the jobs it's the people who are looking for people to fill them mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, they, yeah. their opportunities as well well now all of a sudden the best candidate in the world is available to you because you've changed a a, not just as simple as changing a policy, especially in something mm -hmm. like defense or medicine or whatever, right. you're going to have to change practices too around security and things like that. It's very exactly. important, but, but it has been amazing to see uh, the way so many things have changed. Yeah, um, and it's pushed the technology forward as well. I mean, there've been so many improvements to accommodate all that. Oh yeah, and uh, I mean, the one that fascinates me the most is um, I've always been one of those people who thought commuting was absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, to see to see a sort of shift in that attitude. Like we just, we, I'm just fascinated to see when something is purely a convention, but people regard it as part of a natural something like mm-hmm. a natural law. To see to see the sort of like tectonic shift towards what you know when you've seen through the veil is just common sense. Um, is <laughs> yeah. just fascinating. Um, so, uh, yeah, just moving on to the next part of the interview, we're going to talk about your book, um, Agile Testing Condensed. I guess actually the first question I'd like to ask you about that is you've had this collaboration with, with Janet, uh, for quite some time now. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, about how, and so I don't want to talk about your book without, and your other work without talking about Janet. So how did you two get together? Well, back, back in 2000, I joined my first extreme programming team and extreme programming was originally, a process for small teams to develop software. And the idea was that your customers or business or product people sat with your small co-located team and uh, and developed the software in these small increments and short iterations. And the original publications about extreme programming were all about testing and quality and people, but they didn't mention testers. <laughs> And when I read Kent Beck's Extreme Programming, Extreme Programming Explained, I was like, you know, we've been trying to make this work at the waterfall, but this is really what we need to do. And, and it's all about people and it's all about quality. And I, I was keen to do it. And, and I got some friends who'd started a startup and we're gonna do it to hire me as a tester. And then we're all like, okay, what's the tester gonna do? Cause we're doing test-driven development. That seems like everybody's doing testing now. And, um, and so uh, Brian Merrick is somebody in the testing world who was also getting into the extreme programming and agile worlds. Uh, he, knew, he, knew, he knew Janet. So as a mutual friend, he, he introduced me to Janet. It's like, oh, y'all are kind of doing the same thing and you should talk. She was doing a similar thing up and she's based in Calgary. Um, and, uh, and so at that I thought we need a book for testers on extreme programming teams and somebody should write this. So I ended up writing it with a tip house and, uh, but Janet was our tester. So we would write chapters of the book and send them to Janet. It's like, okay, what do you think of this? And she said, let me try that with my team. And then she, she'd report back. So, so she tested out the techniques and, and processes we were recommending and practices we recommended. So that's how we got started collaborating and, we ended up starting to write, do some writing together, do some presenting at conferences together. And when I was asked um, to write a more general book on agile testing, not just extreme programming, uh, I said, Tip didn't want to write another book. So <laughs> I said, Janet, how would you like to write a book? And I had, I had to work on her, <laughs> really talk her into it. But it's been great ever since. So yeah, I think, well. I think uh, in a little bit, we're going to talk about your experience actually writing those, those two books uh, for a, you know, a conventional publishing company and things like mm-hmm. that. Um, but uh, the book, uh, Agile Testing Condensed, um, uh, that you've got on LeanPub, who is the audience for that book? Um, it's anybody, uh, anybody interested in testing and quality and on an Agile team. Uh, it's, it's, the audience is everybody involved in delivering software. Uh, and because we we really have seen over the past 20 plus years, it, it takes the whole team getting engaged in testing and then building, thinking how to build quality in for it to work. It doesn't work to have just a separate tester or testing department trying to cover all the testing. You can't, you know, there's an old saying in the testing world, you can't test quality in. 
And, uh, and so we have to be thinking about quality from the get-go, starting with that shared understanding I talked about, testing feature ideas. You know, are we solving the customer problem? And, you know, testers are important at that stage too, but getting everybody, asking the questions, getting everybody talking, having conversations, using the various models. There are lots of different models, like uh, Janet and I really have found our agile testing quadrants useful, originally developed by Brian Merrick, and, and he let us adapt them and use them. Of What's the business facing quality? What's the technology facing quality? How are we going to guide our development? How are we going to evaluate whether our product is meeting customer needs and thinking about all those aspects of it and planning our testing around that? We found those things really helpful. And I imagine the book would also be for, you know, executives and people like that too, right? Who want some visibility in the way things are working underneath them. Well, underneath yes, them, yeah. One of the reasons <laughs> one of, we wanted to write a really short book because we really hoped manager, managers and executives would take time to read a short book about testing and quality. Uh, our, our first couple books were 550 pages each, and this is 100. So, so fingers crossed. That, but we've had a lot of good feedback from people in all kinds of different roles who've read it so, and found it very, very helpful. And it's, it's really interesting to, 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 to a lot of people listening, it might seem sort of common sense that you'd want to have a whole, a whole team approach and, and get everybody together when you're developing a product. But a lot of people find that really counterintuitive, right? There should be mm -hmm. someone at the top who's issuing commands to the people beneath them, who's issuing commands to the people beneath them. And then you can particularize the responsibility that everyone has all the way along the chain of making things and deciding how to proceed and, and stuff like that. So if someone, mm -hmm. if you were, if there was some, there's some executive out there listening to this episode of the podcast going like, well, what it, it all sounds a bit kind of like, I don't know, warm and fuzzy to talk about getting everybody mm -hmm. to talk. Why isn't that just going to end up in a lot of wasted meetings and no responsibility yeah. lying anywhere? So if there were a, a skeptic listening to this, what would you, what would you say to them? Um, we can, we can save a lot of time <laughs> by, by having these sessions together and improving our communication. So Jan and I both promote using a lot of visuals, you know, virtual whiteboards, um, virtual sticky notes, models, again, visual models to help guide our conversation so that we don't waste time. Because if you just start talking around and waving your hands, you can just get bogged down. But if you're drawing a flow chart or you're brainstorming with sticky notes and affinity diagramming those sticky notes and oh let's here's the area we want to focus on or if you're doing story mapping to find the what's what how are how are our users going to use our feature and what's our minimum viable product for that feature what can we get out first to get to get information back and learn so having all those visuals to enhance the communication uh, is really really important and and it means we're going to have less rework less wasted effort our time from thinking about what feature you want to get in that feature in production is going to be much reduced. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really great answer. Um, uh, you know, it's good. We're going to, we're going to save you time, uh, yeah. which is going to mean we're going to make more money. Um, mm -hmm. and, and there's, there's the answer. And, um, and I like, I, I particularly, um, am drawn to the idea of having like shared material, you know, like shared visualizations, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. things like that. It's not, it, the, the point of that is not to sort of like, give each individual their own sense it's to give you a shared understanding of like this is what we've committed to this is how we've agreed to depict what we're doing this mm -hmm. is how we've agreed to talk about what we're doing and so I, I actually think that that's actually one of the things that you know having everybody do anything on do everything on zoom mm -hmm. um, has actually probably improved a lot of productivity in a lot of places because it means 
a lot of the stuff that's sort of like ineffable that happens in meetings, you can't you can't get away with, to put it in a kind of adversarial way, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. what are we really doing here? Uh, you know, if you're standing in your living room, <laughs> it's a lot harder to sort of do the theater of like, oh, some work just got done. Uh, with and and you know and but also being in disparate places and not being able to have the sort of water cooler oh let me catch you up on what happened kind of thing mm-hmm. means you actually have to have a shared document I think Amazon right. famously you can't go to a meeting without having written a memo you can't arrange a meeting without writing a memo mm-hmm. that everybody has to read before they go and right. having these shared visualizations these shared documents these shared definitions mm-hmm. things like that can be really important um and on that note with respect to definitions um so i wanted to take the opportunity to ask you about some specific things that people who work in software or hear, hear about it might hear from their testers but don't really know what they really mean by it okay. um, so we've got you we've got lisa crispin here why not ask him um, so uh what is a regression test so a regression test is making is is done to make sure that as we change our code or change our product maybe the configuration uh, that we don't, or we add new features, we don't break existing features. We don't break the behavior that users are already using uh, unintentionally. And so regression testing just makes sure that all those things work as they did before. Um, they don't, it doesn't typically find new bugs. If you're manually regression testing, it, it may be that you notice something that's that's new, but automated regression tests, generally, all they tell you is, yep, you didn't break anything that was already there. There might be bugs in what you did. We don't know that, but the stuff that's already there still behaves the way you expected. Okay, so make sure your product doesn't basically go back in functionality. In right, some right. Sense. Yeah, yeah. And um, what's exploratory testing? Ooh, that's a hard one to define, but... Um, it's it's learning about your product or your feature um, by Elizabeth Henderson explains it the best of it's like you're an explorer it's like you're Lewis and Clark <laughs> you're going out to discover the West and you have some materials you have some resources you've got your canoes you've got your maps you've got your botany guide you've got your you know, Native American interpreter or whatever. So you got some tools. You have a charter. You've been told to go out, you know, by catalog all the flora and fauna, find a way to wherever they were trying to find, Northwest Passage. So you've got some missions. Uh, and with exploratory testing, you kind of take your resources and think about what is it you want to learn? What do you want to discover? And then you, you I, the way I like to do it, it's just a time box. Okay, I'm going to focus just on this part of the feature, and I want to learn about the specific area. And as we're doing that, you're trying to keep an open mind. This is something that I, I find best done in pairs or larger groups um, so that you have more people observing. And, and just to keep you an open mind of, oh, there's something I didn't expect. We're looking for the unknown unknowns that we couldn't think of as we were trying to get the shared understanding of our feature. There were just things we missed. We didn't think of those things. We need to do more. We need to add some user stories to, to add some things to that feature. And uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a learning. It's, it's somewhat, I like the structure at some. Uh, so it's somewhat structured, but it's not writing down a bunch of test cases and going through them. 
It's super interesting you mentioned uh, working with someone else. Um, so mm -hmm. just to give people an image of what this looks like, is this is this two people sitting in front of a, a screen uh, with a keyboard and a mouse and kind of clicking away on something, trying to find a path through a product? Or is it perhaps that, in, and in addition to that, looking at maybe diagrams of like how something's supposed to behave and then analyzing those? I, you know, I don't, at this stage, we've already verified, usually we've already verified that the, the, the feature meets its requirements. It does what it was, what, you know, as far as we could define in advance, it does those things. This is more about looking for the unexpected or the things we didn't think of. And, um, and so the way I like to do it is with two people to do what's called strong style pairing. Uh, and if we're doing this in person, we'd each have our own keyboard, but we would probably have shared monitors that are mirroring each other. So it's a personal space. It's really easy to do remotely. Uh, and so you have a driver and a navigator. So the driver shares their screen. They've got their hands on the keyboard and the navigator tells them what to do. And the idea behind it is, is the navigator shouldn't type that everything has to go through the driver. That frees the navigator up. It's like riding shotgun in a car. If you're driving, you can't pay attention to everything around you. But if somebody else is driving, you can look all over and, and tell that person, slow down. I need to look at something more. Or, Turn here. <laughs> uh, and then switching that pretty often every few minutes, switching those roles. And I, I, it's really works well in a group as well. Where, where I work, we do ensemble programming, or also known as mob programming. And we do the strong style pairing where we have a driver and navigator, but we switch those roles around the whole group. And that gives you a chance to have a diverse group of people. Maybe you've got somebody from customer support. Maybe you've got a product person. Maybe you've got a designer, uh, a, an operations person. You can have all these different people in the room and they're all looking for something different based on their interest uh, and their knowledge. And it's super, super effective. You can get a lot done in a really short time. And so in this example, yeah, the, the specifically what's on the, what's on the screen is, um, is the code. Well, no, it's like, well, I test web apps. So you'd right. be testing your web application or whatever. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 I mean, you can code that way as well, but yeah, so I'm it, talking specifically about testing. It's so interesting. I, I keep invoking the sort of like somewhat patronizing figure of the, you know, ordinary person who doesn't know how it works. Right. But I think, but to, to, to go ahead and do it again, you know, a lot of people often think that programming means you're alone. Yeah. Uh, in a cubicle or something like that, but actually it's a lot of group work. Well, it works better that way. <laughs> a lot of people go into programming because they think they can hide in a corner and never come out. And that works in some organizations and maybe that works for some people, but uh, it's really interesting right now where I work, uh, we've been measuring uh, the cycle time uh, of, you know, the, the time from when you start working on a, a new piece of a feature to when you get it in production. Um, based on the size of the group working on it. So anywhere from two people up to eight people. And right now our current data shows that having a group of five people is twice, they do twice as much, they're twice as fast as a group of two or three people, which is really counterintuitive. But that's what our data is showing so far. So it's, it, it's not what we expect to happen, but but the, the reason, part of it is you're just reducing the rework because if there is a problem, so there is a bug in what you're doing, somebody's going to notice it right then, as opposed to handing it off to a tester 
And a couple of days later, they come back and say, I found this bug. Oh, I don't even remember what that was. Let me get back into this code and see. <laughs> yeah, it's so, so. it's so interesting how um, these subtleties get baked into the language, like, you know, the concept of rework as opposed to fixing, for example. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Like, I, mm -hmm. if, if it were me, like, I'd be much more motivated to avoid rework than to avoid fixing. <laughs> you know, so putting it to me, like, you know, you're going to reduce rework. Mm hmm uh, it's like, yeah, of course I want to do that. And, you know, having testers and people from, you know, who understand the impact on different aspects of the business and the user and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, but, you know, the, the whole team or holistic approach just mm -hmm. makes a well, lot of and sense. Well, and is it better, you know, a lot of times when I've worked on high-performing teams, there has been an issue where, wow, we really thought we were killing it and, and we cranked through and we delivered a whole bunch of stuff to our product people. And they're like, no, that's not what I wanted. And that's again, and that's where I think testers come in a lot of making sure that we understand what they want, because it's really painful when you think you've done a really good job of something. There are no bugs in it; it's totally solid, but it isn't what they wanted, and you've got to redo it. That reminded me of a line from the book. I think is um, that that testers are the glue on the team. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Is that is that was that a right to make that connection? I, I yeah, I think that is a really good way to look at it. Just. I think one of our superpowers is we get the right people together to talk when we need to. <laughs> right, right, right. And I, I would imagine too that partly like maybe as you know a tester or a group of testers like sort of see all the all the moving parts uh, or mm -hmm. or at least know that where the I think you talk about visualizing dependencies in the recent blog post. You know, seeing even if you don't know exactly where what's at the end of the the line, you know that mm -hmm. there's some dependency down there that someone right. else knows about. And you mm -hmm. can see the connections between two paths or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's when you're programming, you've got to really be down narrow, fo narrowly focused on the code you're working on. But as a tester, you have the freedom to back up and see the bigger picture and see the application or the product more as the customer will see it. Um, my last question, I guess, before we move on to the next part of the interview uh, is, I guess, I guess there's um, a bit of a, I don't know a pun here, but you know, there's a definition of done that you talk about in the book and oh. coming to an agreed definition of done. So before we're done with this part of the interview, um, I wanted to ask you, how do, how do you go about, what, what is a definition of done? Can you give us an example, if you're working on, on a team, what a definition of done would be? Um, part of it is, you know, let's, part of our definition of done might be, well, we want automated regression tests at the unit level. So at that down at the basic code level, uh, at the API or service level, kind of in the middle, you know, the components of the code and through the user interface, if we have a user interface, whatever the user interface is. So we've got some automated regression tests. We've done exploratory testing. We've done accessibility testing. We've done security testing. We have done, you know, the product people have seen it. The designers have seen it, um, you know, a checklist of things like that to make sure that we've we've thought of doing all those things and depending on what's important it might have been important to do performance testing or load testing there's so many different kinds of testing activities um you know does it work on all the devices where it should work so it's highly dependent on on what you're working on but just to to make a list and make sure it's not going to come winging back because it needed to work in a certain way on a certain device and it doesn't <laughs> It seems like a, just having a, a definition of done would probably also serve the role of, I mean, it, there's no end to the 
potential testing you can do for anything, right? right? You know, right. I mean, you, you sparked me thinking about that when you talked about security, right? Like there's having a shared definition of when we're done and it's okay mm -hmm. to put it out into, into the world is also a way of saying like, if something did go wrong, it's like, mm -hmm. we're all jointly responsible for it. Yeah, that's we a good all, way to put it. We all agreed that this is what done meant. Mm -hmm. Maybe we need to change our definition of what done meant, but you know, even, even whoever made, I mean, made the mistake or, or missed something, right. It's mm -hmm. like, no, but we, as a group, we decided we were ready to go. So we're all right. For that. Yeah. yeah um, I think, isn't there some saying, but perfection is the enemy of done or something? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, something like it happens when you're writing a book too, because people have to say, well, how long did it take you to write the book? And, you know, like, oh, well, you know, 15 months or whatever. Well, you've and it's like, it could you have made it better? And like, of course, <laughs> but we at some point we had to get it out to the audience <laughs> you've just given me the the sort of perfect podcast guest segue uh oh, into the next part of the interview where we talk about your experience writing and, and publishing um and and working on books and so probably maybe the best way into this discussion would be to say so you you mentioned you wrote a couple of long books they were for a, a conventional publisher with a with a you know recognizable brand name to people who read programming books and stuff like that um but then uh for this book uh, you and janet decided to self-publish and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about your experience of the difference between those two ways of writing and publishing and um, yeah, what your experience was like. Well, I think, I think it was actually helpful to have worked with sort of traditional publishers before because we had the experience of working with really good technical editors and copy editors and, and kind of learn, you know, what is needed to put together a, a, a quality book. Um, and, and we were able to know the pros and cons of, of different, those different ways of publishing, um, for the second book, Janet and I did, we considered self-publishing and, and had a long talk with our publisher about it. And the reason that we ended up going with the traditional publisher for that book was we had a big audience in China and it's, I have not discovered yet how to get a self-published book into China. Uh, and and very few publishers even can do it, but the publisher we were working with is, is able to sell books in China. Um, you know, so if that's important to you. <laughs> uh, but conversely, when you go with a, a publisher, they get to decide when, when the book gets translated into other languages. And we have an audience all over, audiences in countries all over the world that were always like, well, can't you translate your book into Spanish or French or German? Like, well, no, because our publisher won't do it. But this gave us the freedom to do that ourselves or to, to very easily have people we trusted to do it and to share the royalties with us. And, uh, and just the time frame, you know, traditional publishers, maybe they're faster now. <laughs> I don't know, but we just wanted to get her done. And, uh, and we knew we could just hire our own copy editor and we could, you know, we knew how to do it. And, uh, and the the platform made it really easy. Yes, yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Actually, the notion, the concept of or the idea of translation um, and regions and selling into different regions and stuff like that. It's one of the things about I think people who haven't had come through the sort of like traditional publishing process might find it totally surprising um, that like you know I can't sell into a region of the world without selling the rights there would be a to someone there might be you know the view yeah. that, 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 a, that a publisher might have and they're just mm -hmm. there's this whole web of legal constructs mm -hmm. that you know the publishing world kind of is 
um, that you become a part of when you do when you do traditional publishing and mm -hmm. you know the sort of like I always use the, the metaphor of like cowboy you know self-publishing is just what do you mean like I just put it on the web anybody around the world can buy it like what why would I have somebody I need to like negotiate with to sell it in one part of the world over another like you know what this doesn't make any sense but to it but to the like call it old way of doing things it absolutely makes sense mm -hmm. and there's lots of like deep reasons for that but mm -hmm. uh but um, you mentioned translations and how translation is important to you. One thing we've been really interested in, uh, you know, watching at, on the LeanPub side of things is how these progressively these translations have come out of your book in Korean and Japanese mm -hmm. and Chinese and French and 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 um, Brazilian Portuguese. Brazilian Portuguese, yeah, yeah. And so, how have you and Janet managed that process? Did you put out a call for translators? Um, no, I, people came to us actually. <laughs> <laughs> so and by the way the thai version is coming out next month oh fantastic and german and spanish are not far behind um now people you know janet and i were so lucky we've had spent 20 years going to conferences all over the world Janet's a consultant so she's consulted and trained done training all over the world um and so we've made all these friends and and people that work work with closely and that we can really trust and they've come to us and say, oh, you know, we really want this book in Japan. Can we translate it into Japanese for you? And it's so e it was so easy to do with LeanPub because, you know, they just become an author and then we can determine how to split the royalties. And it's just, of course, I say it's painless. Janet does all the heavy lifting on that. But but even she says, it's, you know, it's just not that hard. So um, and, and she's been able to help all of our translators get going on LeanPub. And, um, and yeah, I mean, we, we, you have to trust the people doing it. <laughs> the only one, the only translation I could read really well was the French one. And, um, and, and you know, and you can get, we, we've had other people volunteer to let me, I'll review it for you. You know, somebody else who's a native speaker and an expert in that area. Um, and yeah, it's it's been wonderful. And I mean, I think that like the Japanese and the Brazilian Portuguese might be outselling English. I'm not sure. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing all that. It's so it's so <laughs> fascinating. We've actually I'll link to an an, an article in the transcription of this online um, where we talk about how to how to sort of set up a translation of your LeanPub book. So if you've already mm -hmm. published a book on LeanPub and someone approaches you to do a translation, and this is by the way why we saved this conversation for the end of the podcast because we get into the weeds. But for anyone ah. who's listen who's listening who's interested in doing it, here's how you do it: um, you create a new book on LeanPub, and in the about the book section, there's a drop down that shows all your currently published books and you can actually say this book is a translation of this other book um, and then that will appear you know on the book's landing page uh, but then what you do is you add the translator as a co-author um, and the reason one of the reasons you do it in that order rather than the translator setting it up setting up the book themselves or creating the book themselves and adding you as the co-author is that as the if you create the book you are you become what we call in our terms of service the primary author which basically means you own it, um, and then and then it's up. You're in control, and it's up to you uh, of what the royalty split is, um, and uh, and then and then so typically what you do is you just make an arrangement with your with your translator, whatever you come out at, what the percentage is they're going to get, um, uh, and actually that leads me leads me to a question um, which I haven't really talked to too many pub authors about how they handle translations, but did you? Um, 
enter into any kind of like legal agreements like you said yeah we we sign contracts we sign contracts with all of them and we oh. give them a date and so you know we agree on a date we sign a contract and that way if they're not done by that date and we can say you know do you, you think you really can do this uh and you know if they say no or it's clear they're not going to be able to get it done then we can get somebody else and usually other people have already offered <laughs> so and I mean, we've definitely had that happen. You know, we've definitely had some translations that are stalled out because the person has, a, for whatever reason, has not found the time and hadn't been able to do it. So having a contract with a time with a deadline in it frees us up to go and then work with somebody else if we want to. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, when money's involved, you know, things things start to, you know, it, it often it often feels like, I don't know, like a prenup or something like that, right? But like, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you probably do want to do that when money's involved, partly because you want to protect everybody on every side, right? Which is what mm -hmm. contracts are for, right? So you don't mm -hmm. want to end up in this situation as an author where the translator's like, hey, you know, you said I was going to get X percent, but you're only giving me X minus something percent yeah. you know, of the royalties or something like that. Mm -hmm. And just having everything spelled out is everybody, you know, what measure of comfort you can have uh, in, in a world like this. So yeah, it mm -hmm. is important to, to sort of get that nailed down. And if you're looking for examples of contracts, um, one thing you can do is you can search online. The self-publishing world is full of blogs um, and bloggers and people who talk about things like that. Yeah, I'd be happy to share ours with people too. Or contact Lisa and uh, Janet yeah. and ask them how they did it. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the last question I always like to ask on this podcast, if the guest is a Lean Pub author, is if there was one thing that really bugged you about how Lean Pub works, or if there's one magical feature we could build for you, can you think you would, of anything you would ask us to do? Be able for people in China to buy our book. <laughs> but I know that's not within your control, so. <laughs> I, well, that's actually kind of kind of news to me. I mean, I didn't know people in China couldn't buy couldn't buy LeanPub books. They don't. China doesn't give people access to LeanPub. I did not know that. Our I guess I always took it for granted is... that we would have we would have heard. It's one of those things we would have heard from people about, but I've never had anyone contact us saying we can't buy books from Interesting. China. Well, maybe they know something we don't know, but um, but our translator, the person who did our translation is, has been for months trying to find a way to do it. And I'm not sure where she is with that, but. There was, there. I guess one of the reasons that I feel very bad about not knowing this um, and not having a 100% certain answer, but another reason like the sort of, we, we have, there was one country, not China, that turned off lean pub at least for ah. a while and we found out pretty quickly because people oh, were like what what's going on so that's something that we're definitely going to have to look into and and try and find out about because that's pretty important country um and and obviously like you know we want we want to have as many chinese readers as, as we possibly can reach mm -hmm. um for our authors and you know just for lean pub generally so that's that's definitely something that I'll, it really I'll look into. It was really exciting to get it translated in Chinese, although our, our previous books had also been translated in Chinese. But I don't know. There's just something about, there's something about having somebody you know well, and you know they're also an agile testing expert, and they've translated your book, or, or you know, there's something very satisfying about that. Yeah. Well, um, Lisa, thank you very much for being on the podcast uh, and for using LeanPub as a platform for, for your book, um, which again, for anyone listening is Agile Testing Condensed. Please go buy it, especially if you're a CEO, you need, you need this book, you need to understand what's happening. <laughs> um, and yeah, thank you very much just for well, and being thank you. I've, I've, like, I've got a huge library of books I've bought on LeanPub that have been so helpful to me. So yeah, it's a, it's a great, it's just such a great resource.
Thanks very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.